So your brain is like a pharmacy and it has many, many of its own substances that can very often deliver, that they can find a way of delivering some kind of result that's based on what you believe or expect. Hey, all of you Body, Mind, Soul Seekers. This is your doctor, Dr. Body, Mind, Soul, here to expand the collective consciousness of the Body, Mind, Soul connection so we can all learn to live a truly healthy life. Let's dive in. I'm so excited to have Dr. David Hamilton on the podcast today. David has a PhD in organic chemistry and spent four years in the pharmaceutical industry, developing drugs for cardiovascular disease and cancer. Inspired by the placebo effect, he left the industry to write books and educate people in how they can harness their mind and emotions to improve their health. He is now the author of 10 books, including The Little Book of Kindness, How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body, I Heart Me, and the Amazon bestseller, The Five Side Effects of Kindness. David is an advocate for kindness and is working passionately to help inspire a kinder world. So welcome to the podcast, David. It is such Thank you very an much. honor, such an honor to have such an accomplished guest on the oh. brand new podcast, Dr. Body, Mind, Soul. Yeah, I love your podcast. I've just been reading um, the, your book, How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body. And there's a few themes that I think will be really interesting for us to explore. The yeah. first one I, I really want to dive straight into discussing is the placebo effect. The placebo, mm. and then we'll go into what the nocebo effect is as well. Because I really yeah, think sure. that this placebo effect really underscores the importance or the presence of the, the body-mind connection and it illustrates it so well in your book. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if you can explain what that is to the listeners who may not know or may have heard of it but don't know exactly what the placebo um, sure. is. Sure. So, so the placebo effect, you know, the, actual, the, the name placebo comes from the Latin, I shall please. That's actually what it, that's ultimately what it means. And really, really ultimately what, what happens is if someone believes that this medicine will help me or if they believe in the doctor who, who's affirmative and, and reassuring, then that belief itself causes an actual health-giving effect. And it's not just – when I worked – you know, I, I was a scientist in AstraZeneca and I found I, – I mostly worked in cardiovascular medicine, but I did a wee bit on cancer – but mostly in cardiovascular, I found the placebo effect fascinating and so incredible. And at the time, I asked some of my senior colleagues, isn't this amazing how many people are improving on, on placebos? And, and most of them said they're not really getting better. They just think they're getting better because no one understood the placebo effect. So I start, one of my triggers for leaving the industry is I spent a lot of time researching it on my own, you know, just through the published research at the time uh, and learning that, you know, when you believe something, it actually causes a chemical change in your brain. So believing something, this is what, what drives the placebo effect, believing or expecting to get better because you believe in the drug or you believe in the doctor. And that belief itself, that psychological state, you might imagine, causes a physical change in the body. And literally, so for example, if you believe this little white tablet is a painkiller, even if it was a placebo, then that belief causes your brain to produce natural painkillers. So it's not just that you think you're feeling better, there's an actual chemical change in your brain caused by you believing something. And that for me was so compelling that I literally, it was, you know, sometimes that idea just grips you and you can't let go. And that's ultimately what really catapulted me from leaving the industry after four years because I felt I'd much rather educate people and how mind and emotions can be harnessed in some ways to, to, bet, to better your health, really. But that's really what, what drives the placebo effect. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I can, because actually, as you say in your book, actually, the placebo effect in the, in the scientific community um, is often seen as a nuisance. As, yeah. as an interference with 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 the experiment, rather yeah. than seeing it as as this incredible ability of our bodies to do much of the work itself. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I I too um, 
really share your 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 passion about um, educating people and um, through this mm. podcast, you know of the body mind soul connection, so we can harness um, the evidence that is there for absolutely for our, for, for our body for our bodies to, to to heal itself. Can you yeah. do you have an example? Um, David, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, that describes the placebo effect um, in a particularly potent way. I know you do that in your book. I'm wondering... Yeah, well, well I mean, well, for, for example then, uh, so uh, a person taking uh, a painkiller, a person who believes that this little white tablet, even if it's a sugar pill, will relieve their pain, their brain produces its own natural version of morphine. So, so your brain is like a pharmacy. And it has many, many of its own substances that can very often deliver, uh, they can find a way of delivering a re- some kind of result that's based on what you believe or expect. And in this case, if you believe this is a painkiller, then what you're, happens is your brain, it's like a wee part of your brain, the wee governor in the brain goes up and says, right, oh, so he's expecting a relief of pain. What, what, what? A, what substance can I pick? Oh, there you are. My own version of morphine. This is better than the stuff that you get injected. This is mine. It's called, an, you know, morphine's an opiate. So the brain has what's called an endogenous opiate. It's its own endogenous. It comes from the inside. So your brain, the, the wee person in charge of your brain goes, right, okay, here we have an endogenous opiate. Pours it into different brain regions. In fact, specific brain regions, depending on where your pain is. But for, if you've got a pain in your hand, for example, then the wee governor in your brain doesn't pour your, its own version of morphine into the whole brain. Just the wee part of your brain that's connected to your hand. It's amazing how specific it actually is. Uh, and then what happens is that, the brain's own endogenous opiate, the brain's own morphine, is what delivers a real pain-killing effect. Not here, 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 or here, but exactly there, because that's where your attention is focused. And it's a, you know, scientists did that. Actually, Fabrizio Benedetti is probably the world-leading expert. He, he certainly has the most sophisticated, advanced placebo lab in the world. He operates out. He's a, an, he's a neuroscientist and MD, operates out of the University of Turin. He did a really cool experiment where they got volunteers to participate in a pain challenge. You know, like how much pain, you know, can you take? And beforehand, you know, it was an injection into the hands and the feet of... A red hot chili oil, you know, the, the substance that makes it burn is called capsaicin. So he injected it into, like, let's say, for example, uh, injected it into the left hand, put the capsaicin, sorry, rubbed it into the hand, rubbed it, sorry, let me rephrase that. So what he did beforehand is he said, we're going to give you this powerful new drug and it will completely eliminate the pain uh, and, and made them really believe it. So he said, you're selected for this trial. If this drug works, it's just a local rubbing on cream. And if it, it and we believe that one, once we rub the cream on the hand, once we inject the capsaicin, the chili oil, there'll be no pain at all. And people are going, wow, this sounds amazing. This will be a blockbuster. So anyway, they get the cream rubbed on, on the right hand and then the injection of capsaicin. And there's absolutely no pain at all. But yet they get capsaicin injected on the other hand with no cream on it and the pain is like 10 out of 10. And they're going, wow, that's amazing. But in fact, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a new drug, local anesthetic at all. It was oil of Yuli. It was a, a, just a natural moisturizing, something like oil of Yuli, a, a natural moisturizing cream. But because they believed that this will reduce the pain, the brain produced endogenous opiates. But amazingly, it only produced endogenous opiates in the little part of the brain that govern those nerves there, but not those nerves on the other hand. So the brain produced natural morphine, but only specifically in the hand that the person believed was going to have no pain. Isn't that? So wherever the attention was directed, it's incredible. So the, 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 your, the brain of the patients who are receiving the cream, they, because they were expecting to, to not have pain in that area. In they, that area. They didn't have pain in that area. No. And it's because the brain produced its own morphine specifically in that region of the brain and in no other. And Benedetti made, Benedetti made that clear in the paper. In no other regions, it wasn't a whole wash of endogenous opiates all over the brain. It was just in that little region, 
associated with where the person expected a relief of pain. I love that. It's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. It, it, it really is amazing. And what else I found amazing um, when you were describing the placebo effect, how culturally um, informed the placebo effect is. Can you, I mean, I know that might sound some quite abstract to those listening. At the no, moment. no, I understand I what you mean. To, I know that you're going to explain exactly what that, what, what I mean by that. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, could, I, could I give you a few examples, Jude? Yeah. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, please do. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, here, here's a good example that depends on how different cultures think about things. So looking at the, the placebo arm of clinical trials for uh, headache pain, for migraine stuff, look at the placebo arm of these. You find that in, in the USA, a placebo injection is 50% more potent than a placebo tablet. Mm. But in the UK, it's the other way around. In the UK, a placebo tablet is 10% more potent than a placebo injection. So forgetting the numbers, in America, a placebo injection is more potent than a tablet, but in Britain, it's the other way around placebo tablet, and it comes down to cultural language. See, in, in the US, a, a popular lie, a popular statement is you get a shot. You see in all the movies, they get a shot. The first, someone's injured, it's, you get a shot. But in the UK, we pop pills. Isn't that absolutely amazing? So in America, because, because it's, it's culturally informed that getting a shot is what, is what makes a, is, is, is the effective medicine, then the effect of getting a shot is greater there than it is in the UK, where in Absolutely. the UK, where we've been culturally um, brought up to believe that pills are what we need to take our pain away. Yeah, we pop pills. We pop yeah, we, our language says we pop pills. So because we have more faith in popping pills because we hear it culturally more often. We hear popping pills more often. So in our language, we subconsciously have more faith in popping pills because it's what we expect. It's what we're, we're used to. But in America, they, have, they hear so much, you get a shot. So that's part of their cultural language, much more than it is in the UK. So even though I'm talking about the placebo arm of clinical trials, the placebos, the placebo injection in America, the shot, was much more potent than the actual tablet. And to give you another example, colour makes a big difference. I, I love this. You know, around the world, you generally find that, that blue has a calming effect. And so a blue tablet, for scientists did a study, one, it was a medical professor, got his medical students, and he gave, he told them that I'm going to give you a relaxant something that will relax your, your nervous system. And he was demonstrating the placebo effect to his students. And he gave half of them a blue relaxant and half of them, they got, a pink, they got a pink one. Do you know the blue one was more than twice as effective in helping people to feel physically and mentally relaxed than the, red, than the pink one? And it's because culturally we think of blue, the blue sea and, and blue is a calming colour and that holds all around the world and there's a few exceptions. One exception, it doesn't, if you look at do a similar kind of study around the world, it works in most places, but it doesn't work for Italian men. And, and, and the reason for that is, you know, generally speaking, blue is a calming colour. But in Italy, blue is the colour of the national football team. And blue is a very big deal in Italy. In fact, you know, when Italy won the World Cup, was it 2006, I think, I was there. Uh, not at the World Cup, but I was in holiday in a little town with my partner and family in Lucca in Tuscany when the semi-final, when they won the semi-final and the whole place erupted and ever, people had blue paint on their faces, blue motorcycles, there was blue smoke everywhere and everything was blue. So in, in, for Italian men, uh, blue isn't a calming colour, it's enthusiasm and excitement. So you get that statistic is reversed for Italian men. And what this really shows you, really, is what your thoughts, beliefs, and perceptions of something are cause a, a physical effect in the body. It comes down to what you believe about something. It's amazing, eh? 
It's really amazing. And this is well known and well and, 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 and used by the pharmaceutical industry. You know, I'm just thinking when you say a blue pill, I mean, diazepam, um, you know, very widely used um, benzodiazepine or sedative or anxiolytic um, medication. So used to calm people down is blue. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And also um, the design of medicine bottles um, the the, the look of pills and the naming of pills, I think is interesting as well, because to give the perception of strength and potency of a medication, that's very close. That's very well considered by the pharmaceutical industry. Absolutely. To give the impression that their tablet is potent strong powerful effective and i love an example that you give in your book do you want to share it yeah yeah so 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 pfizer uh, pfizer pharmaceuticals who who own who, who created the drug viagra now not by accident viagra happens to sound like niagara uh, and you think of what the niagara falls represents it's a force of nature it's powerful and it, it it's powerful it's strong and it, you know if you think even more symbolically, it's straight curve at the top. But anyway, <laughs> you know, but it's a force of nature in itself. So it's a powerful, you know, natural thing. So that, even though we're not consciously thinking about it, when a person takes Viagra, part of that, the essence of what, you know, that name represents in, the, in our psyche, in our natural experience, it has an amplifying effect. Think about it. How well do you think the drug itself is called sildenafil? Viagra sounds more powerful. Do you think it would be as powerful if it was called Flopsy? <laughs> you know, because we have a different perception of what that word means. So you have the difference between the best that can be, the worst that could be, that's actually in your own head. It's in what you, your perception of something. And the perception of something is just is is so it is so vital to to its effect, which is very clearly demonstrated by by the placebo effect. And what I I, I love in in your book is just sort of an exploration about you know how can doctors really harness the really harness this knowledge? Know it now that we know that that a patient's belief and trust and perception of the effect of a treatment is as important than the treatment itself or certainly very significant um, to the Mm. treatment itself. My question to you is like, how should doctors be harnessing that knowledge? Yeah, well, you know, what the the main thing, think about when a patient comes to the doctor, the, the doctor's the expert and the patient trusts you. So the, the way, the, the, one of the most important ways to boost, the, to actually use the understanding of the placebo effect is empathy. And a large number of studies show that what introduces you to be able, as a, as a medical practitioner, to, to harness the placebo effect, for, first thing, is empathy. Is be there with the person, because then you're, they're, they're really trusting you. And then to speak in encouraging Tones, sympathetic but encouraging tones, and also affirming tones. A research that looks at even language that doctors use, and doctors use an affirmative language, but but lead in with empathy. You know, I'm here with you. I understand that. You know, it's so it must be really really tough or whatever. You know, words are appropriate to the situation. But then, uh, you know, reaffirming. You know, this this is what you'll need. This will be great. This will work for you. You'll be absolutely fine. You know, and just that kind of thing amplif- harnesses and amplifies uh, the placebo effect. Like a, a quiet inner confidence that makes you likable. You know, so it's a quiet, not, an, a, not a forceful, but a quiet inner confidence in yourself as a doctor, uh, but also balanced with empathy. You know, there's, there's one, and, and empathy itself causes not only a few, causes uh, adherence to medicine. You know, patients are more likely to stay the full course of their medic, of their the prescription, if you show empathy. There's lots of research showing that. But secondly, the feelings that they get from being in your empathetic presence actually boost their immune system. There was a study of over 700 patients who went to the doctor for the common cold over a period of, it was a, a, not multiple surgeries over a period of, of 18 months, I think. And the, the scientists measured uh, levels of SIGA, 
So it's an immunoglobulin. It's, it's, it's a, an antibody for listeners. It's the first part of the immune system that a, a virus, bacteria, pathogen will meet. It lines your mucous membranes. Very, very important. And they found that when the doctor showed high empathy, so the doctor's empathy was scored. So the patient was recruited privately for this. And we had to fill in a questionnaire called a CARE questionnaire. So consultation and relational empathy. When they showed, scored the doctor as a 10 out of 10, their, their levels of SIG antibodies were much, much higher than, it, than for everyone else. So in other words, doctor empathy was correlated with the immune function of the patient in the room as the patient responded to the common cold. And, and all that was, was empathy. I mean, this is, you know, this really, um, this really speaks to my heart because I think the, the doctor-patient relationship is so undervalued and underutilized. It's a therapeutic yeah. relationship. And this is just really, Absolutely. really demonstrating that. And I just want to go back to the point um, about uh, doctors harnessing the placebo effect. Because I don't want to give any misinformation or any uh, any any dubiety about what we're actually seeing here. I'm not, we're not saying to, that we're going to be giving patients the placebo effect. Uh, the, yeah, uh, absolutely. Any placebos for, for their, and uh, so that's not what is being said. But what is being said is actually the way in which you firm or encourage or advise a patient that you normally would do in a consultation to take a medication for their particular health condition really matters, not only to the adherence of the medication, but actually to the effect, the impact that medication will actually have. Because if that patient believes that medication will work, which as a doctor, you inherently believe it will for them. So this is no lie or manipulation mm. um, by a doctor. So I don't want that to get confused. But what I do want to emphasize is if as a doctor, you believe a medication to work, how you communicate that to your patient has a real impact on how that medication will actually work, which is why a recognition of the placebo is so important and how we can actually harness that as medical professions, uh, professionals to really do good for our patient, in, in, increase the impact of the medication you're already Absolutely. giving them. Yeah, you, so as well as the really effective medication you're giving them, just empathy and reassurance, uh, and you're, you're maximising the, the benefit. You know, it, it's just, in some ways, it, it sounds like common sense, but, but some, I think sometimes we have to hear things like that and hear that the scientific evidence before it, it, before it encourages to actually do the things that we can intuitively know are, are true anyway. You know, that's one of the things I love about this kind of science. It just backs up some things that we kind of intuitively know already. I mean, that's the whole tagline for this, con for this podcast, really, is where modern science meets ancient wisdom. We know these things yeah. intuitively work, but there's, when there's science to back that up, it's a beautiful thing. And, yeah. um, but as you say, and we say we, we say we know it instinctively, but as, as, we, as the health system is stretched to the degree it is, mm. and doctors are under increasing pressures i think when they're feeling stressed it's harder to drum up the empathy um for for each and every patient and i just want to well one acknowledge that i acknowledge that two yeah. um to just really just shine a light on what we can do to maximize our time with our patients and know that how we deliver information um, even so far as how we dress, which, you know, that's one of the reasons we're in scrubs, you know, it's just to reaffirm mm. the position that we have and, and, and the place of authority that we have. All of these subliminal and subconscious cues that we are um, engaging with yeah. are important and have an effect and have a real biochemical um, effect that, that, can, that can genuinely enhance the, the, the effect of the medication that you're already going to be prescribing for your patient. Yeah, that's so well put. That's really, really well put. Yeah. yeah, so that's, yeah, that's great. I'm really glad we got to cover that. And um, I also just want to just really briefly uh, mention, because I think I mentioned it at the start and we haven't really covered it. What, how would you describe, what is a nocebo effect? Ah, 
right? Do you know, I very often see people writing the nocebo effect is the evil twin of the placebo effect. So you can think of it in that way. It's kind of the opposite. And, and you know, I, I think at the start I, I said the, placebo, the word placebo comes from the Latin, I shall please. Well, the word nocebo comes from the Latin, I shall harm. So one, I shall please you by making you better. I shall harm you by making you worse. So that, this is why they're kind of opposite. So the nocebo effect is when someone, uh, it, there's two ways of thinking about it. When, when someone creates symptoms for themselves because they believe something negatively, but it also works when someone can negate the power of a medicine by not believing in it or not, not trusting the doctor. So for example, if, if you gave a, a patient you know, ibuprofen and said, look, this will be all you need for such and such a thing. And if the patient perceived that you hadn't really listened to them, you hadn't paid att enough attention to them, hadn't showed them empathy, you know, the patient tried to tell you what was wrong and, and you, because maybe you're very, very busy and maybe it's been a really tiring day because you've got a young child and you've got a lot of things in your life and, and it's hard to drum up empathy and enthusiasm 40 times a day, you know, or, or, or more. But the patient comes away thinking, no, ibuprofen is never going to work for me. Uh, and so what, the, what their brain does now is it generates uh, antagonists, it generates substances that literally negate the effect of the drug. So the effect of the drug is suppressed because the person has a negative belief about the drug or about the, the experience that they had with the doctor. So we actually generate also chemical substances, but they block the natural effect rather than enhance it like the placebo effect. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just so fascinating. It's just so fascinating. Again, just emphasizes the point, you know, how we, how we um, communicate with our patients is so important. Um, to, so even, even if I think it can be very throwaway and very easy to just people feel fobbed off or dismissed if they're given simple analgesics. Um, like yeah. or ibuprofen but when you know and and I find that a lot and but I do I, I, I've started to learn to reinforce how important these simple analgesics are and how effective they are when when they work when when they work well because as you say it, actually if they don't believe that they're that they're going to work they will not work yeah, exactly. You know, we really, we really do negate the power. We negate. We can negate to a, a significant degree the power of some very important uh, things. Yeah, fa absolutely fascinating. And I guess the placebo just leads us so nicely into discussing the power of the the body mind connection. I mean, it illustrates it so beautifully, yeah. and. Um, I, I just want to expand on, on the placebo um, just to um, go through some of the other examples that you've demonstrated in your book for um, mm. how that body-mind connection works. Um, and uh, I was wondering whether you could go through, because it's a very predictable, very um, ever-changing sequence of events yeah. That, that work, uh, and we're increasingly learning about the mechanisms through which they work to explain the, bo the body-mind connection. Um, and yeah. I'd love if you could actually, yeah, walk us through that. Yeah, okay. So, so, so you know, the really obvious place to start is, is the area that we've known about the mind-body connection for decades, but we just didn't really, we didn't really think about it and label it as this is a mind-body connection. When you feel stressed, it's not the situation that you're in that produces stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol, norepinephrine and stuff. It's not the situation. It's how you feel about that situation. Because two people can be in exactly the same scenario. One person feels stressed, one person doesn't. The person who feels stressful of high levels of stress hormones. So the situation itself isn't necessarily triggering the stress hormones. It's how you feel. So here you have a feeling state now is producing stress hormones in the brain and now down in the body uh, and what, the what cortisol for example does is turns down immune function so cortisol will suppress the immune system so now you have a, a psychological state that's turning down the immune system at the same time the stress itself increases blood pressure partly there can be some constriction of the blood vessels so now what you've got is a physical effect on the, the cardiovascular system due to something that you feel which ultimately is coming from something that you're thinking. So here you have, you might just be sitting on your own, 
thinking. I thought, look, my God, I've got to get that thing done tomorrow or, or that patient is coming in tomorrow and I'm not really sure how to interact, what to tell that patient or I've got a report due tomorrow or whatever it is or thinking back about something that happened yesterday. And, and so it's just something that you're thinking, producing something that you're feeling, which is now suppressing your immune system and increasing blood pressure. If you want to go even deeper than that, what you're actually getting is the activation and deactivation of genes. So you have several hundred genes associated with stress, including those which produce, you know, adrenaline, cortisol, precursors and others, and, and even genes which are inflammatory genes and genes that produce oxidative stress. And at the same time, you're turning down natural anti-inflammatory genes, natural, you know, calming substances in the body. So there's a, ca a genetic cascade of genes which are switching on and off like we Christmas tree lights. It's really just responding to a state. But let's take the opposite of stress. Now, when I say to people, you know, in live lectures, what's the opposite of stress? Everyone says it's peace, it's calm, it's relaxation. I understand I would have said the same. They're not the opposite of stress. They're the absence of stress. Physiologically speaking, the opposite of stress, given that stress is a feeling, is kindness. It's the feelings induced by kindness. You know, so just like feeling stress produces stress hormones, feelings induced by kindness produce, I call them, kindness hormones. Really just to draw the, the parallel between how they're produced, it's a mind-body effect. They're produced not because of a situation, but because of how you feel in a situation. Amazing. And I just want to slow this right down so that we can really, really understand all the sequence of events because what, what I'm hearing you say is that our body perceives fear or stress in some situations. And that situation, that psychological state, triggers a cascade of stress hormones forced through the body. Those hormones are now coursing through the body and they will attach themselves onto the receptors of cells, of key cells. Yeah. What that does then is communicate through the receptors on the cell membrane into this. It, 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 that's, how, that's how, this is how cells um, switch on and off various, it sort of it, it, it um, instructs the cell to then carry out certain processes. Those processes will then in turn create different hormones or different uh, proteins to be uh, exactly. instructed and to be built. Yeah. Which then go through the body, which then give another domino effect, several other instructions. That in this case, for example, stress, will prepare the body to fight, fight or freeze. That's yeah. what you're going to do. Now, in doing that, you are redirecting the body into a state of emergency, which the immune system in that moment isn't the priority. The priority is the muscles, the priority is the heart, the priority is to get away from danger. And yeah. therefore, because resources of the body in that moment, because we've felt stress, we then are indirectly then causing our immune system to go down because that's no longer the priority of the body in that time because our body actually has felt the stress. We feel it in our minds, like we feel it in our minds, and, and, yes. and, that, and that has a knock-on effect on the proteins, the hormones that are produced by the cells, which then go on in turn to influence other body systems. Yeah, absolutely. That's so well put. You know, and... And what, what I love about the moving away from stress is the feelings induced by kindness produce kindness hormones. You know, the main one is oxytocin, the female reproductive hormone, but it's not just a reproductive hormone. It's not just involved in breastfeeding. It has multiple roles in the body, including it roles in the gut, roles in the brain. It even helps to, you know, rebuild cells and stuff. But one of the main things that it is, it's, it's cardioprotective. What oxytocin does, the kindness hormone, it, it it binds onto receptors that line blood vessels and it triggers the release of nitric oxide. And you know, for, for people in medicine listening to this, uh, another peptide called atrial natriuretic peptide or ANP. 
And what this does, ultimately, you get a release of tension in the walls of the blood vessels and the blood vessels expand. And so that caught, the heart doesn't have to push as hard, so the heart eases off pressure. So oxytocin, the kindness hormone, actually reduces blood pressure. You know, so here you have a, a blood pressure lowering effect, which is the opposite of what happens with stress. Stress increases blood pressure, kindness because of how it feels. Again, it's not the act of kindness itself, it's how kindness feels. Just like it's not the stressful situation itself, it's how that feels to you. So it's the feelings of stress, here's where the mind-body-soul effect comes in, it's how something feels is triggering the release of oxytocin, the kindness hormone, that's in some ways elevating immune function and it's, it's reducing blood pressure and it also improves the functioning, the gastric mobility, sorry, gastric motility in, in the gut and it helps with repairing of wounds. Some research actually shows that it helps to accelerate wound healing. It, it works in conjunction with, with particular growth factors that help to repair wounds. So having the feelings induced by kindness ha can actually accelerate a recovery process, whereas feelings induced by stress can block the process. So you have some wonderfully, really important mind-body effects, which really can just come down to a thought. I can just think of someone I care about. And I can, you know, it's a technique I teach people to trigger the release of, of, of the kindness hormone is to stop at any point in the day and think of someone you really care about and think in your mind some of the reasons why you value that person's presence in your life. You might think of specific things they've said or done for you, maybe particular times when they've shown you immense support at a time when you really needed it and, and allow yourself to feel the feelings of, of warmth and, and connection that you get in that feeling of warmth and connection is which turns on the oxytocin tap. And now you're having a blood pressure lowering effect, you're having a, 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 an improvement in gut function, you're having a, the body's able to better repair its wounds, all simply because you're thinking of someone you care about. I mean, it's extraordinary. And it's really obvious, it's like you say ancient wisdom, which you talk about, it's ancient wisdom, and now we have the science that confirms it. Absolutely, and it sounds something so simple that we could, that all of us could really employ. And and it's, I guess, it's like the, I know that you know, gratitude is, is quite a buzzword at the moment, and trying to feel gratitude. But when you understand actually that the that the, the, these thoughts and emotions are causing a biochemical effect that actually really um, impact health outcomes it starts to really improve it starts for me at least to um recognize the importance of, of, of yeah. and and what i'd love you to explain because um i mean there's such poetry um that you know the heart heals through kindness i mean i th just think there's a, incredible poetry to that again ancient wisdom you know now we're sort of seeing the real science behind behind that is the effect actually of relationships and being a being a being a trained relationship coach myself? I love exploring the impact of our relationships on our on our health. Can you 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 explain in your book um, about hard marriages causing hard hearts? Can you go into the research yeah. you've uncovered about the relationship between the quality of your relationships and the quality of your health? Yeah, well, in that part of the book, I, I, that was my attempt at trying to be kind of poetic. Because uh, basically, what the effect that you see is uh, good quality relationships, where there's a lot of warmth and connection, uh, are correlated with good cardiovascular health. Whereas relationships that are dominated, for example, with hostility and aggression, are correlated with cardiovascular disease. And in one of the one of my favourite uh, titles of a of a scientific paper, or at least an abstract of a paper, was a. Marital conflict relations and coronary artery calcification, or CAC for short. You can most listeners can probably work out what that means. Marital conflict relations and coronary artery calcification. And basically, in this study, scientists got 150 married couples, and they asked them, they put them in a room one couple at a time, and asked them to discuss marital subjects, topics, and family life. You know, stuff that's real. They want, and, and, and they videotaped them for half an hour. And this was taken as a proxy for, you know, what would be normal. So and when I say it's taken as a proxy, they, only, they don't use the first 10 or 15 minutes of the tape. Because most people know there's a video camera kind of 
are nicer than usual to their other half. So they chuck away that and they only use that in the last 10, 15 minutes. So it's can, that's considered a proxy for normal behavior. And they begin to, to score individual displays. So if someone shows a display of warmth or affection or compassion or, or gentleness or kindness, you know, clearly positive relationship uh, behaviors, then for each time they do it, they get a, a positive, like a one, a plus one or a plus two, depending on what it was. And then every time someone has a display of anger or aggression or hostility, one of these kind of harder concepts, they get a negative score for each time they do it. And, and the number one, two or three is dependent on what type of thing it was. And at the end, when you, you add up all the scores, you have a complete spectrum from really high negative to really high positive. So the really high negative is, is people whose uh, behavior is dominated in the relationship is dominated with hostility, aggression, aggressive behavior. And at the really high positive, you have people you might call softer people. You know, they're heart-centered, very, very gentle with each other, very, you know, empathy, show high empathy and very supportive and warm and loving, tactile even. So they're softer people, and those who are ag high aggression and hostility are harder people. So in one of the most beautiful symmetries I've ever come across in science, and when I say symmetry, I mean symmetrical, it's reflecting on both sides. Those who were harder people had high levels of coronary artery calcification, otherwise precursor to hardening of the arteries. And those who were softer people had normal, perfectly soft arteries. And they took into account, the receptors took into account diet, lifestyle, smoking, drinking, took all of those factors out. And the only difference came down to how you treated your, how you communicated and behaved in that small slice of time. That, was, that is what was correlated with cardiovascular health. Nothing to do with diet, lifestyle. If you took all, if you averaged all those factors out, isn't that amazing? So it's almost as we harden towards each other, it's almost as if we harden on the inside. And as we soften in our hearts and emotional hearts towards each other, it's like we soften in our physical hearts. It's absolutely, it's, it's really poetic, isn't it? It is really poetic. And also when we just hear that in context of what we've just been exploring about how that works biochemically, through the action of oxytocin and how that affects nitric oxide and how that affects the, um, the, the elasticity of our arteries. It makes sense that that would be the case, but it's not really generally considered to be a risk factor from where I sit as a, as a medical doctor. And also one thing I, I, I sort of wonder about as well um, is, you know, the impact of, we consider as risk factors for heart disease, you consider as doctors, you consider smoking, we consider diet, we consider high blood pressure as recognized risk factors um, for cardiovascular disease. And what makes me sort of curious is, is, you know, they seem to me to be all sequelae to stress actually. So high blood pressure is consistent when we are feeling stressed. We often go for cigarettes as a coping mechanism to when we feel stressed. So normally people will go for a cigarette when they feel stressed and that becomes a habit for them to reach for tobacco, which is a grounding plant, yeah. you know. And also we have um, the effect of diabetes on diet, again, high sugar diets, and we go to sugar to comfort our stress very often. So the independent risk factors that we recognize as medical doctors, I wonder whether if we could just take that step beyond what's driving the risk factors, which so often I think is the, is the perception of, of stress and maladaptive coping mechanisms that we mm. have developed in our lives to cope with the, the stress that we experience through diet, through smoking, like bad habits, and through, um, and through blood pressure, then leads us to have hard hearts, as you say, unhealthy hearts, hearts with atherosclerosis, plaques, calcification, however you want to describe yeah. that. Yeah, that's right. This is why I really love the work that you're doing because not only as a trained medical doctor, you, you're also educating people in 
some of these softer aspects that are immensely important that, that we just, I think conventionally, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what it's like in medical school now, but conventionally doctors are not really trained in the importance of the softer side of things. But, but maybe un, until nowadays, the data really wasn't there, but it, there's much more compelling evidence for the cardioprotective effects of, of the kindness hormone, for example. It's also called the love drug, the hugging hormone, the cuddle chemical. It has lots of names. I just added the kindness hormone to it simply to draw a parallel with how it's produced relative to stress hormones. And it's equal, equal, almost equal in strength, but opposite in direction. And so I love what you're doing because you're, you're talking about this heart-centered, softer part of it and, and, and validating how actually important that really, really is for our overall health. If we were able to, to tap into our, you know, the, the softer aspects, we maybe wouldn't have as much need for the pharmaceutical drugs further down the line because maybe we'll not be reaching for the cigarettes and we'll not be reaching for the unhealthy. We'll be managing our state much better. So there's a ripple effect further down the line that you're teaching people to to not even to not have to rely on the things further down the line if they can tap into the the love and the kindness and the natural compassion that each of us are genetically wired for. You know, the kind the genes for the kindness hormone are one of the oldest in the in the human genome, but five hundred million years old and four days. Now I'm only kidding four days. But but the gene, the gene for the kindness hormone is about 500 million years old. It's present in all one-blooded species. Now, what that means, it's evolutionarily conserved. It means that its, its role is crucial, has been crucial for the survival of the human species. So, so we have a natural tendency to be kind, natural tendency to care and to be compassionate. And, and so what you're educating people now is if we release that natural tendency, it's immensely health, healthy for us. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, and immensely, it's immensely helpful, uh, healthy to do that. We we actually need it for our survival, um, is what you're actually demonstrating. We need, yeah. kind, we need to feel cared for. We need to feel loved, and um, we need to yeah. feel valued, um, as a as a survival strategy. Actually, so it's it's crucial. Yeah. It's crucial. It's crucial. It's crucial, and also crucial in particular. We sort of touched on this before we started recording on this podcast actually how crucial it is particularly for men so men are the leading the leading cause for death in in men is is heart disease and i know you're doing some really interesting research just now about you know the, the way that men typically have been socialized to keep their emotions inwards and how toxic that actually is for their health can you explain a little bit about what you're finding through the research you're doing around that? Yeah, so 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 when when we are less like when we bottle up stress and we bottle up our emotions, which is you know I'm speaking as a male, someone who used to do that a lot. I still do it a little bit, but nowhere near as much as I used to. Over the years, simply because I'm aware of the research, I'm much more willing to you know to express my vulnerability, to open myself up and just, you know, let it out, have a cry. I, I cry fairly often, actually. You know, it, not something I, I normally publicly talk about, <laughs> but I do, I do cry often. But but what happens when we hold it all inside, it's like you're, you're, you're tensing emotionally, but your body tenses on the inside. And what you see is tension throughout your nervous system. And that's very clear in something called vagal tone or you know, medical people listening are more familiar with RSI, you know, respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And, and in some respects, that, 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 that's about the, you know, if you breathe in, your heart rate increases and you breathe out, your heart rate decreases. And what pulls the decrease down is your vagus nerve. And so, so what, that gap, that difference between the high and the low RSI or vagal tone. And, and what happens is if we are more willing to express our emotions, then vagal tone actually increases. If we hold emotions tight inside, then vagal tone decreases. I've actually been tracking my own. Uh, I track my vagal tone, what respiratory signs are with me on my watch, uh, and I've been doing it for, for a long period of time. Uh, and I notice how it does average out, correlate with where I am at emotionally. If I'm having a, an emotionally stressful type of, of period, then my, my vagal tone my, is much, much lower. 
But if I'm in a, a much more better emotional space, then it's much, much higher. Now, the importance here is, is this, got, this massively impacts the anti-inflammatory process in your body. The higher your vagal tone, the better your body is able to, to manage inflammation. I mean, it's called the inflammatory reflex, which is you're driven by, by the vagus nerve. Yeah, secondly, what it also, also does is it's correlated with cardiovascular health. So generally speaking, and it's not an absolute, but generally speaking, the higher value number you have, the healthier your cardiovascular system and the more you, the better your cardiovascular health. So even just tensing up emotionally and not releasing things can have this effect. Also what it does is it suppresses immune function. It's a guy called James, psychologist called James Pennybaker, who had written a book called Expressive Writing. Uh, and basically he taught his students hundreds of students in classes and other uh, situations to literally for four consecutive days for 20 minutes just and it's especially important important for not only men but women as well just literally write down everything that's, blo that's blocking it's in your heart get it out on paper four consecutive days and what he found after the four days is a massive improvement in psychological health immune function even uh, notice that they're immune response to an endotoxin was significantly better after four days of expressive writing. So there's so much negative impact of keeping it all inside and so much benefit of letting it all out. It's so fascinating. And I just want to go back to the point where you're talking about sinus arrhythmias, just so I can break that down for people who don't understand that mechanism. But what, um, what David is, is, is alluding to is that our nervous system has a sympathetic branch to it and a parasympathetic branch to it. So that's the side of the immune system which um, prepares you for fight and flight. That's your sympathetic system. And your parasympathetic system which counteracts that and allows your, your system to, to relax. And what, um, what David is saying is that when you take a deep breath, your parasympathetic nervous system engages and actually communicates to the heart to slow down. So that's why focusing on your breath and having big, long, deep breaths actually lowers your heart rate. It brings the heart rate down. It engages the parasympathetic system to act. And in doing that, it, it, it counteracts that stress fight flight response. What David is saying here is that when someone is stressed, their parasympathetic nervous system is less able to relax the heart and because of that it's less able to fill more effectively it's less able to it becomes hard it, it becomes more calcified it becomes more stiff and when that and that state of a stiffened hardened pressured cardiovascular system puts that at risk for subsequent cardiovascular disease so the pressure of the of the blood that's coursing through tight tight blood vessels put stress on the vessel walls causes atherosclerotic disease so those plaques to form within the arteries and then that is what subsequently puts people at risk of having heart attacks so really the 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 the, the, the discussion around um bottling up those emotions and not being able to fully relax it's so interesting that sinus arrhythmia is really allows us to see when the parasympathetic and sympathetic relationship is working well and effectively. And we often see that in younger patients, particularly young men. And that definitely diminishes as people grow older. And I hadn't really appreciated that that reflected the level of stress or cardiovascular calcification, rigidity within those vessels to stop the relationship being so elastic, so pliable, so, so responsive. Mm. It's almost like as we become more elastic in our emotional expression, it's almost like the body mirrors it on the inside. Another really bit of symmetry. Well, I mean, and, and, you know, poetically, you know, our outer environment often reflects our inner environment. You know, that's, that's, yeah. that's said a lot. So, um, yeah, that's just a, such, a, such a wonderful example and also a great strategy for those who find it difficult to express their emotions. And I do understand that men are, have been socialized up until this point not to show their vulnerability, not to show their emotions, and also not to receive. You know, it can be really hard to receive kindness. 
to mm. to actually to actually um, be vulnerable enough to enjoy the feelings of feeling loved and cared for. And that to some people, particularly men, perhaps it may feel unsafe to, to do that um, yeah. because of their conditioning. But just, the, you know, I'm hoping that by discussing that here, we can um, just highlight the importance of that and how that may in fact contribute to cardiovascular risk as people, particularly men age. Yeah, that's amazing. Actually, it's such an important thing. But you know, I'm saying this as a male. Most males I know have have great difficulty in expressing their emotions, and I think because we're taught, you know, from an early age that we're supposed to be, you know, we've, we're supposed to man up. You know, we're we're supposed to be the strong one. We're supposed to, you know. Uh, be the one who's in charge, who's making the money. And even though that isn't true in a modern world, it's still in the psyche. And for many men, I learned that when I was a child. It was ingrained in me because that's what all the men did. They went out to work and the women tended the home. And, and so even though that's not true really generally in the, in the modern world, it's still in, in the, the I, I think the male, the collective male psyche is this need to be emotionally strong and tough and to man up kind of thing and you know and I think we have to unlearn that and we have to be more vulnerable and we have to learn to to cry and we have to learn to express our emotions that's some great work that you're doing if you're working on that it's vital it's vital for men to be able to do that it is vital for men to be able to do that um I like having a good cry oh gosh so do I David so do I <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, keeping it, keep it, letting it out rather than keeping it in. Um, yeah. we, we can actually release release the body of those pent up feelings, and that really has a physiological effect. So, yeah, yeah for anyone listening, if they need a good cry, let it out. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but I hope this podcast episode hasn't made anybody cry because I think what we have tried to discuss here is really how much power we have over our inner experience and how important it is to use that knowledge to really empower us to make better choices for our health um, both as practitioners and understanding the power that we have as medical professionals to really um, maximize the effect of the drugs that we're prescribing to our patients in how we communicate them that's one really important takeaway. And also to really underpin the importance of the body-mind connection and really value, um, really value the, the power our mind has to heal our body. Mm, absolutely. Wonderfully put. Amazing. So, David, you're writing um, another book now. I don't know how much of it you can reveal to our listeners, but I just want to say that I'm very excited to be uh, inviting you on later on in September, I believe, September 2021, when that book will be coming out. Yeah, yeah. So I've, got, I've got about six weeks to finish it. No pressure from a publisher or anything. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the publisher's side because I can't wait to read um, what you, what, what you're, what you're yeah. writing, and I can't wait to bring you back on the podcast to discuss the evidence that you have um, amalgamated and gone through painstakingly to bring us some real pearls of wisdom, real pearls of ancient wisdom, and marrying them with the science so we can enhance, so we can expand the collective consciousness of the body, mind, soul connection. So the, to educate and empower us all to truly live healthy lives. So thank you so much for your work um, in this. You're welcome. And I just thank want you. to, um, just where can people find your work, find your books, learn more about? Uh, well, oh, oh, I've got 10 books so far. They're all on Amazon. Uh, you can also link my website, drdavidhamilton.com, links to all of my books. So I mostly cover, my books mostly cover the mind-body connection, kindness and self-esteem. I've got a, a book on self-esteem as well. Um, I'm very active on social media, and mostly Instagram and Facebook. And what are you uh, David R. Hamilton PhD is my David R. Hamilton PhD is my handle uh, there. And so I post lots of videos and just wee bits of blogs and stuff like that as well. Great. So anyone wanting to find more about what David does on a regular basis, um, 
spreading kindness and the importance of feeling loved and feeling cared for and being kind to others so that they experience those feelings, which is so vital to our health and evolution now more than ever. So thank you so much to um, Dr. David Hamilton and we will uh, excitedly await the next episode that we do together, David. Yeah, can't wait. Thanks very much for having me on. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. If you have any questions relating to this episode or you have a topic you would like me to explore on the next podcast, shoot me a DM on Instagram at Dr. Body Mind Soul. 